Hello and welcome to Explain It, brought to you by Softcat. This is a show for IT professionals that aims to simplify the complex and often overcomplicated bits of enterprise IT without compromising on detail. I'm Michael Bird, and over the next 20 or so minutes, I'll be challenging our panel of experts to take a different area of the IT ecosystem and, of course, explain it. This week, we're going to be talking about ransomware, what it is, why you should care about it, and how an organization might protect themselves against it. With me to help demystify this is Matt Helling, Softcat's Head of Security Sales. Hello, Matt. Hi, Mike. And Adam Luca, who's Softcat's Chief Technologist for Security. Hello, Adam. Hi, Michael. Ransomware hit the news and public consciousness in May 2017 after users from organizations across the world started reporting a strange looking red window popping up, demanding hundreds of dollars to get their files back. So Adam, Matt, what exactly is ransomware and how long has it been about for? So ransomware is a type of malicious software. It's a piece of malware that essentially locks people's machines and data. So it locks you out of the of the access to your data and then extorts you. So it charges you to get the access back. So um, it's a really a form of digital extortion. What's the first instance of ransomware? Okay, so let, let, come on, let's let's have a guess. Let's see. What what do you think, Michael? When did you think the first instance of mal- uh, crypto uh, malware was? Ninety six. Ninety six. What about you, Matt? Uh, I'm not sure. I think it's been marketed very well over the last few years. So people know the name of ransomware, but it's probably been around for a bit long. I'm going to guess early 90s, late 80s. Uh, surely need the internet for that, no? Yeah, well, that, I, I kind of thought the same thing, if I'm honest. You know, I uh, as part of preparing for this, as you imagine, we did some research and had a look around. And, and actually, the first instance of crypto malware was uh, went by the names of the AIDS Trojan, uh, written by a gentleman called uh, Joseph Pop in uh, 1989. So this is pre-internet. Um, and it was delivered to people. I bet you can't guess how. By uh, Morse code. No, Morse code. To be fair, carrier pigeon feels like it could be an option. Um, so it was delivered by a floppy drive. So actually they would post a floppy drive pretending to contain uh, a piece of uh, free software. It came onto the PC and it overwrote something called uh, the auto exec bat file. And it then started to count how many times the machine was booted. And, and after a certain number of times, it, it would uh, hide all your directories and encrypt your files. And it would essentially render your whole computer useless. So did they do this? to make money or they do this to be a pain? Interestingly, they did it to make money, although, as you can imagine, making money was a little bit more difficult yeah, back in the day. limited, right? So how did they get the money from this attack? Okay, so they didn't have Visa. There was no PayPal. Um, unfortunately, uh, they had to do it very old school. So this is something I don't think I've ever actually done in my life. You had to write a check and you would send it to a PO box in uh, Panama. So Wow. Yeah, so but think about it, Panama, Panama Canal, Panama, like you, you'd have to airmail a checkout. So you would have your files locked for like a month or so. Oh yeah, 100%. Uh, very interestingly, one of the things we we saw within that piece of malware, or, well, we didn't see, but that, that happened within it was that it didn't actually start to, uh, start immediately. So it would wait for uh, 90 reboots before wow. it started. So I think it's quite a clever distancing technique. You know, if, if something happened to you 90 days ago, and actually then the, your your car broke today, would you be able to trace back that it was the thing that happened 90 days ago that you thought was totally normal? So for that, technically, how did it work? So interestingly, it, they used a symmetric encryption cipher, which is a bit different to the way uh, the crypto malware works today. We, we see more use of public key cryptography today. And that was really one of the key limitations of this piece of malware, if you, if you can call it that, was that um, what it did was that it, it encrypted using the same key to encrypt and decrypt. So when people took the malware apart and de- uh, and sort of decoded it, they found the key inside, which obviously gave everyone their files back. 
And so nowadays, what, what do they do? So nowadays we use a public key cryptography methodology. So what that means is that we use a public private key pair and each encryption key is unique to that session, to that device. So in the event of somebody, you know, uh, pulling the malware apart, all they'll get out of it is the public key. And the public key is kind of useless to the to the researchers or the malware uh, investigators. And actually what you need is the private key, which is what's held by the, the, the bad the bad actor, the malicious guys. I know that me and Matt, we spoke about this uh, ransomware, ransomware as a service sort of stuff on the dark web. So you can go out and rent platforms, you can rent infrastructure to launch some malware, uh, ransomware attacks. Yeah, well, wow, okay. So, so I could go onto this dark web. Pay for usage. And pay for usage. Absolutely. Wow. Okay. And they'll even provide you with a software and a help desk. Wow. So who, what kind of people are using it then? Because presumably back in the days of the floppy disk, it was uh, a bloke trying to make some money, quite easy and to And make trace, a name for himself. And making a name for himself. But nowadays, what kind of people are, uh, are using these kinds of attacks? So I guess really when you think about it, there's a couple of key people who were using crypto malware or those types of, uh, of technologies. Number one is your criminal standard criminal actors. So anyone who wants to make money, um, 2017, how much do you think the ransomware market is going to be worth? A uh, hundred million dollars. What are you, Matt? Billion. It's five billion. Wow. Five billion dollars. When you look at the level of task force that's actually on um, online crimes and digital crimes, there has been a lag in the sort of in the police and especially Interpol and, and those sort of larger international police organisations getting their heads around how the hell do we actually deal with this stuff? Absolutely. Is it is it easy to trace? So maybe washing the money is going to be the hard thing to do. Yeah, one hundred percent. As as always, it's the money trail. Actually, it's kind of easy to use these digital currencies and and. And that was really a shifting point in the way that the crypto malware market actually evolved. The idea of this, that you no longer needed to send your check to Panama, um, made a big difference. And, and Bitcoin being one of the, the key... Um, but it's such a volatile currency as well, right? The value oh yeah. of it is going up and down on daily rates. So. Yeah, so interestingly, there are some... If you look at some of the early malware, you know, you were talking 40 Bitcoins. Wow. Okay. <laughs> so interestingly, some of the, uh, some of, I've had a thought about this the other day that if you had been a early adopter of crypto malware, i.e. an early pusher of crypto malware, not that I'm advising this, but actually if you hadn't transferred your money out, you probably made more money in the, uh, increase in value of Bitcoin than you have in actually your Bitcoin and your ransomware activities. Cause I've just, I've just had a look on the internet. A Bitcoin is around about six grand, which is low. I mean, it was what, 16, 18, it went up yeah. to wow. $18,000. Wow. It went up to. So nowadays, with ransomware, uh, they're asking for they're asking for bitcoins. They're not asking for Visa. They're not asking for American Express, whatever, because it's really hard to trace or harder to trace. I think people think Bitcoin's hard to trace. Um, actually, all the Bitcoin transactions that take place across the world are available in the public ledger. That's kind of the whole point of this this decentralized cryptocurrency. So what these guys do is they, they've used their digital skills, but then they combine them with a very traditional sort of mob mentality that you have these money mules, these people who will go take a small percentage of that Bitcoin you've got sitting there from your uh, illegal activities, and they will then transfer that into their own account they will take a cut and then they will purchase another type of legitimate digital currency. So it kind of just flies under the radar. Well, it kind of flies under the radar, but it you decentralize your risk. So if you think about it, like you're 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 Mr. Kingpin, you're Mr. Uh, ransomware guy, and and actually you're sitting there going, hey, you know, I've got a hundred million dollars in bitcoins. You know, actually you don't want to be trying to pull out a hundred million dollars in bitcoins at one time because you're immediately going to get flagged and get caught. But you take a thousand people 
and you give them all $1,000, actually, if five of them get caught, you really don't care. You're playing a numbers game. You are decentralizing that risk. This The, the other side of it as well, if we've got to take into account the, the people that are doing it. So individuals that are trying to make money, absolutely. You know, they can, they're, they're trying to get money out. They're trying to exfiltrate money out of individuals, out of companies. But if you look at the nation state side of it, they're not really in it for the money. They're in it for disruption. So you could put it in its purest form and say, well, a nation state could disrupt our water systems and they could hold the country to ransom. They could take control of our power, our sewage, any utility that we've got. And what impact would that have on us as a society? It's huge. So the kind of people that are behind it, you're saying, so there's kind of, the, there's almost two camps. There's like the nation states where there are other governments trying to disrupt other governments. And then there are the people that's just trying to extort money, basically. Yeah, 100%. When you think about, uh, as Matt described, that panic that is able to be called, we look at Petya uh, or not Petya and you look at WannaCry, actually, it plunged whole countries into mass chaos for several days. Surgeries were cancelled, yeah. you know, it, everything it just stopped for days. So do you think we're going to be seeing more or less of these kind of attacks? Interestingly, I think we will see them change. Previously, crypto malware being a very successful industry actually is going to continue to grow. I think that's very logical. Given the, the increase in value of cryptocurrency, people are starting to move away from it being related to crypto malware. So actually, the crypto bit seems to be the bit that's staying, i.e. the use of cryptography. But it's less about locking people out of their devices or out of their files and more about utilizing their, their processing power. So it's, a, it's crypto jacking. So what you do is now, rather than actually locking someone out, you'd much rather fly under the radar, steal their power and their heat and their, their spare CPU cycles and use that to make your own money out of uh, uh, cryptocurrency because actually you're less likely to get caught, I think, in those scenarios. You know, if you're going to get... Think about how much uh, attention you get doing a WannaCry. Well, actually, if you're just the guy who managed to get some malware on someone's computer that runs in the background and, and doesn't really disrupt anything and just mines some cryptocurrency, what's the likelihood that's going to go to the police? I would say a lot lower. Actually, you've not caused a massive disruption. All you've done is nicked spare CPU cycles and you've still got your Bitcoins out of it at the end. So it's kind of more of a win-win, but I think it's a much lower risk to the, to the I guess, the criminal actors. So, but presumably that, that, those kind of attacks uh, that you're saying that, you know, they're going to move away from um, ransomware and move towards basically hijacking their machines to mine cryptocurrency that's not going to be nation nation state attacks are still going to be trying to lock machines down because because what matt was saying was you know if you wanted to, wanted to take down uh, a health service or utility you st- you're going to want to disrupt them rather than try and um, take over their computers yeah 100 percent. so I, i'd really agree with that i think the the nation state stuff is going to stay on disruption um i would say the criminal actors really they don't want to disrupt they, the only reason they used encryption as a form of of doing that was that it was a really good way of extorting people I think the real clever thing the criminal actors realized is that previously, if you kind of think about uh, cyber attacks, what did they typically do? It was about nicking data. And there was a lot of steps involved. Whereas you think about what crypto malware did, they took the person who cared the most about your data, which is, you know, you. You're the only person who gives gives a damn about your old pictures. And what they've done is they've sold that access to the person who cares the most about it which is yourself. And that was what was really clever. That was the, the thing they really highlighted and they really recognized and took advantage of. Um, the nation state guys, you know, they're really only using crypto malware as a form of causing mass disruption. So I suppose the question to lead on from that is then, how exactly 
does it make its way onto a machine and what can what can organizations do or what have they done to protect themselves against it so so i think interestingly there's lots of different ways it gets onto a machine and and i guess we better to look at them individually as different scenarios so number one you look at the very traditional the the age trojan style which is very much you know you go looking for something and you don't get what you thought you were going to get. Actually, you don't get that free game you thought you were downloading, that free CD, that MP3 from LimeWire, if anyone uh, still remembers what that was. That was pretty much just a malware distribution platform. <laughs> um, and actually, it, that's very much playing on our, our social desire to get something free. So interestingly, those, those types of uh, attacks are really predicated from people going to download something, clicking on it and running themselves. There is nothing more than human interaction. So that's scenario one. And I guess when you look at the scenario one, you, there's a few bits you'd have to kind of think about about defending that style of attack. You know, number one has got to be your people. Education. 100%. Awareness. Yeah, I mean, everyone must remember their parents saying to them, you know, if it looks too good to be true, it probably is. But I don't think we've got to that point where actually a lot of, uh, you know, people actually apply that, that rationale or that logic to the online world. Interestingly, we kind of think it's magic, and and I think there's a large proportion of the of the population who would still think that when they see some fake site that says it's Nike giving away five thousand pairs of trainers, that it's Nike giving away five thousand pairs of trainers, and all of us sitting around this table probably sit there and go, no way, that's just never, you know, I'd never. But I might that. take a look. Yeah, you, I definitely <laughs> would. You know, I you know I'm a guy who works in cybersecurity day in day out, and and actually I think the best one I ever received that that, that did actually get me almost to click was um was, was an Apple invoice for a Garmin download a Garmin sat nav download which was 150 pounds and it was a oh I didn't order that panic moment which bypassed my normal pretty logical assessment of wait that's weird um and I clicked the link and it was a it was a phishing site it was a phishing site to fish my Apple ID credentials and and really what I liked about that attack and you know luckily I, I kind of figured out when I saw the URL bar wasn't right that it was was an attack um but what I liked about that was it they used panic to bypass my normal logical process and obviously you panic you're like well i didn't do that oh god i need to cancel that uh, cancel that application uh, purchase um which i think is very interesting i think there's a lot of uh, the the psychology of getting people to do things is 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 very interesting in an, an area that we're only getting want of a better time better at or at least the uh, the the bad actors are getting better at i heard i heard a really interesting story at a seminar a few weeks back where the ceo of a large u.s organization was on the sunday watching his daughter play football she didn't usually get in the team she wasn't a great footballer it was a nil nil all the way to you know into the last 10 minutes daughter came on lo and behold scored the winning goal she won the game he plastered it all on facebook on the monday he got into work and he got a message through facebook saying Oh, John, uh, I was at the game yesterday. I saw your daughter score. I've got it on video. If you want the video, if you send me an email from your work address, I'll send you the video clip. So good. So his barriers are down. He's yeah, thinking, well, somebody's got a video of my daughter scoring the winning goal. You know, it was the biggest event of her life and I've got an opportunity to watch it. So he sent an email. If you think from a an email security perspective, if an email is going out and it's receiving, a lot of those barriers have come down naturally anyway. A lot of those security uh, processes have, have, have been removed. Email came in, clicked on the video, lo and behold, boof, machine locked, message pops up. 
But that's that's leveraging the like the social element of it, isn't it? You're, you're pulling on the heartstrings, and that's very hard to defend against. It doesn't matter who you are. Yeah, 100%. And I think with with the first style of attack, it was very much, you know, download a program, get something for nothing. The second style of attack is you've not patched your infrastructure. You know, you've not effectively performed vulnerability management. They have got a foothold in your network, whether that's via a, an endpoint, you know, potentially you've not patched the browser. You've gone to a web page, it's downloaded a, a, a Trojan on. Number two, you've lost some credentials, maybe, you know, you, you've, you've allowed credentials reuse so people have used their their credentials out on LinkedIn and that's been then breached um, and then they've used those credentials to potentially jump onto a VPN you've got externally and then all of a sudden you've got an attacker actually in your environment and what they'll typically do in that stage is they'll it'll be much more like what we'd seen as an APT attack a few years ago you know this idea that you would actually have a real active uh, active uh, attacker inside the network who's going to look to laterally move and get into your network but except what they're now doing is they're they're doing all the lateral movement getting onto the PC and then they're encrypting everything and then they're not just stopping and standing back and putting you up an automated screen that says give me two bitcoins they're saying contact me at this email and that's what the stuff you don't see and that's where the real money is paid that's the you know multi-billions tens of tens of millions of pounds in ransom it's a bit black mirror isn't it oh it's it's very black mirror um and i think you know it, at the end of the day, it's extortion. It's no different to racketeering. It's no different to, you know, two big guys with a baseball bat turn up your business and say, you've paid me some money or I'm going to break your legs. Like, except the difference is you don't know who these two guys are. You don't know where they live. They don't have to be physically in proximity to you. They could be anywhere in the world, you know, and they really can go without attribution. Like, and, and that's... I think that's the thing that, that makes this quite so scary is, is I think we don't have the global reach that they have in terms of a defending this prosecuting this investigating this we still are hampered by the boundaries of of countries so so i guess with all of these things you're saying you know they come in through various different means presumably you just have a good backup no i think uh interestingly backup is is very important you know actually if you value the files and that's what you care about, your loss of access to your files, then a backup is going to be very important in getting that stuff back. Um, interestingly, there have been a number of the strains that have also sought to defeat some of the backup mechanisms. So things like shadow copies, they've uh, automatically deleted those. If the backup was online, it, they, they try and replicate and spread across that as well. So, you know, they are pretty tricky out there. So, you know, you want a good backup that is off-site, the potentially cloud-based, that isn't accessible directly. I think I think the important thing as well is, is to have a process, is to have a plan for worst case scenario. Um, you know, the, the whole adage of not if, but when, I think, you know, that, that's very vibrant. I think that's very honest. Um, and a lot of organisations will struggle if they don't have at least a plan or something to go to in the event of this happening. You know, you, t you take my example of the, the CEO of the organisation. Imagine if that happened to an organisation that you work in and you walked into a room and they said, right, what are we doing? And nobody had an answer. So I think it's important, you know, awareness and training and everything, but you still got to assume that at some point somebody could or would or will click on something, something will happen. So it's important to have a process and a number of people that form a group that help you remediate these problems. So what, what kind of things are organisations doing? So I guess, yeah, the, the strategy is it really depends on on the method that the malware is delivered via. So we, we talked, we spoke about one specific scenario, which is very much the, you're looking to get something free in, and I very much agree that the the education awareness piece is massively important in that in that area. Um, the other piece is then making sure you have good anti-malware defences. So you are trying to block and uh, detect the, the crypto malware coming onto it. Um, 
ultimately some of the more traditional approaches that people have taken, so signature-based, has been slow to react given the, the large number of samples created every day. When you look at, you know, look at the stats, one in four businesses has been hit by malware been hit by ransomware in particular, not just malware generally. So what was happening with the traditional approaches was that they, they just weren't keeping up with the new samples created all the time. Actually, they, they weren't able to get the updates out quick enough to identify these bad, bad pieces of malware. So I think with the shift towards some of the, the next generation or signatureless, or at least not just based on signatures, really, we've seen an increase in, in the effectiveness of those defensive layers against ransomware. But as always, you know, even if you had a, a sort of a seven nines effectiveness, a 99, and, and five nines after it, which is massively high, highly effective. The scale of the problem is so large that actually there will still be thousands, if not tens of thousands of incidents that will get through. So given that really, you've got to make sure that, that you're able to identify how quickly can you get your stuff back. And that's where your business continuity planning has got to come in. And, and I think if a lot of businesses can take that approach, you know, what really matters to your organization? You know, what really is the thing that matters the most about what you do? So work out what that is in your organization and work out how you're going to be able to keep that thing up, even if everything else goes down. Absolutely. And from an end user perspective, just pay it. Hmm. This is the hard, uh, tough, this is the it? FBI question, isn't it? Which yeah. is like, you know, we, we don't negotiate with terrorists. Like, um, and, and I guess the, your, your moral view is always a little bit like, oh, well, you know, we do, we don't negotiate with terrorists because it only, uh, perpetuates the problem. And I don't know. If it's I a was, tough one, isn't it? If I was sitting there and I'd lost everything and someone was asking for a thousand dollars and you're a FTSE 250, and there yeah. have been stories of businesses that have just paid it. They paid 100%. a lot more than that, haven't they? Oh, yeah. And I mean, a lot of people, are, I think when they think about ransomware, you think of the lock screen, pay us a Bitcoin automated thing. That's not really the ransomware that really matters. The ransomware is the active attacks. That's where you don't ever hear about it. And, um, you know, I've worked with a number of instant response companies and they have stockpiles of Bitcoins. They hold Bitcoins to pay and they don't hold Bitcoins for fun. They hold Bitcoins because sometimes that is the only way out of a situation. Okay, so to wrap up and to try and summarize. The way I'd look at this is number one, educate your users. Number two, keep good security hygiene, patch your stuff, have good endpoint protection. Number three, have a plan for when it goes wrong. You know, don't let the first time you thought about what is my security incident plan be when you have a security yeah, incident. plan is so important. 100%. Um, and the final one is, you know, accept that if it does happen, how are you going to get the services back? And ask that question we asked earlier, you know, go and speak to your CEO, go and speak to your CFO, go and speak to the people who run the business and say, what is our most important asset? What's the impact on us as an organisation if this gets taken down? Brilliant. Well, Matt and Adam, it's been super, super interesting talking to both of you. Thank you so much for your time. Um, and listeners, if there's anything in this show that's piqued your interest or you'd like to talk to someone at Softcat about ransomware, um, we'll put some uh, links in the show notes um, and uh, we'll also put some contact details in the show notes so you can get in touch. So you've been listening to Explain It from Softcat. Thanks for listening and goodbye.